Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone. Thank you for joining us. I hope you're doing alright. Let's not even waste space today. Speaking of the man-child in the White House, he has lost. They will do a recount in certain states. He will lose again. He will not admit defeat. We knew this already. We will remove him ourselves, if necessary. But until then, let's focus on a path forward. And to do that, we must continue to reckon with the white supremacy that permeates every facet of our society. That's where Resma Menachem comes in. Resma is a healer, trauma specialist, and New York Times best-selling author for his latest book, My Grandmother's Hands. The book explores white body supremacy in America from the perspective of trauma and bodied center psychology. His focus, as I understand it, is to set a course for healing historical and racialized trauma carried in the body and the soul, to deal with the inherited trauma we hold within ourselves and that we inevitably pass down through our physical bodies from one generation to the next. Resma's work does not exist in opposition to diversity training or policy designed to combat systemic racism, but I think it's clear, given the state of this country, that the training and policies are insufficient. They have not rectified the problems at hand. As a body healer and licensed clinical social worker, Resma is focused on changing the conversation around race, using new science about our bodies and nervous systems. His goal is to make the invisible visible. I think he does a fair bit of that in this conversation. So, here is Resma Menekum. Resma, thank you for being here. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. How are you feeling right now? I am sleeping kind of weird. Got some aches and pains coming up. Not sure what's going to happen next in terms of like 
the kind of national and global sense. There's a lot of constriction in terms of emotional stuff, just trying to express the stuff that I need to express. If it's wailing, if it's anger, I just try not to express it without hurting people. Well, I wanted to sit with you this week because you've called your book My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. You've called it a book of healing. And we're in a period of transition in this country, especially with the victory of President-elect Biden. And a constant refrain throughout the Biden campaign and now the aftermath of this election has been about healing. Mm-hmm. That we can now come together and begin to repair the damage done over the past four years. You're laughing as I'm saying this. <laughs> that is, in fact, why you're here. Right. But before we do this healing, I think it's imperative to better understand what we're trying to heal. So to you, what does healing look like after the year we've had? Yeah, I think we got to start before we look at after the year or the four years we've had, that whenever I hear politicians or white folks or anybody outside of the black community try and talk to the black community about healing, I always have a cockeyed view of it. It doesn't sit right with me. Just like in my body, something feels or I experience this sense of offness. And that's why you laughed. Yeah, that's why I laugh. Because usually when people are saying we need to heal, we need to come back together, they're making the assumption that we were together as a people. They're making the assumption that before Trump came into play, black folks was just killing the game. We had our home ownership was killing the game. We had wealth that we was passing down that was killing the game. We, we had more jobs than we knew what to deal with. Our babies weren't getting shot to death. They weren't being put in prisons. They weren't being thrown down in the schools by police officers. Like all of that was not happening. And so we need to just all come back together and sing Kumbaya and keep it moving. And so for me, the reason why I laughed, man, is because I know that the coming together really does, when people say that, that really is servicing white comfort. White comfort trumps black liberation. It trumps black pain. It trumps indigenous land theft. It trumps all that. But what I know when Biden says that or when people say that, they're not taking me into account. They're taking white comfort into account. And so for me, healing doesn't start with Biden winning because here the reality is, is this. So Trump is not going to be in there. So far, I mean, that's a, across my fingers when I say that, because what you have is a strongman dictator, an authoritarian dictator. And if you know anything about history, they don't leave. They get put out. They get forced out. And that's what this dude is. That's how he's configured is to stay whether you want him to or not. And so for me, the reality about Trump leaving does not mean that Trumpism is gone. And Trumpism is white body supremacy. It's just a personalized white body supremacy, right? And so Trumpism is 71 million people who voted for putting babies in cages, man. Sam, check this out. 71 million people voted for continuing to call Mexican people criminals and rapists. 71 million people voted for grabbing women by the genitals. 71 million people voted for this. 71 million people for disparaging gold star families, for disparaging veterans. 71 million people. That's not going to leave when he gets put out of office. So when I hear Biden and people talk about we need to just start healing, I don't know what they're talking about. As you write... You're not the first man or woman to recognize the key role of destruction, restriction, and the abuse of black body in American history. You cite James Baldwin, Bell Hooks, Richard Wright, Tallahassee Coates, all people who've explored this subject. But you are coming at this subject from a different perspective. What are you offering that you feel those folks could not or have not? First off, I'm, I don't feel that I'm offering anything that they have not or could not. I really believe that my book is a testimony 
to the breadcrumbs that they left. And so for me, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Baldwin, Maya Angelou, Tony Moore, all talked about the body. And they talked about the visceralness of white body supremacy on the black body and the brutality of it and how it's a structural setup and a philosophical setup, not an episodic setup. I think where I come in differently than them is that I am a body worker. And what I mean by body worker is that I am a clinical, a licensed clinical social worker and I'm focus on trauma. When I'm working with trauma, I'm working with the body, literally how this traumatic stuff shows up in the body, how the energy of it shows up in the body as protection and how that energy can be transferred and transmitted to subsequent generations. And so my angle is to begin to lean into the body first, literally how does it show up, and then help people begin to develop context around the trauma, the stuckness, and the constriction. The material creates kind of a constriction and not being able to admit that you're wrong. Um, I hear that all the time from white bodies, like, all of the art, all of the, the, the interviews that I've had is why some white bodies having difficulty with the embodiment pieces of this work, not necessarily the intellectual pieces, right? Uh, not necessarily being able to say, well, in, in my ethnicity, this happened. And in my nationality, this happened, stuff like that. Not those pieces, but the real embodiment pieces. What are the struggles? So one of my organizing kind of rubrics is that the white body is the supreme standard by which all bodies humanity shall be measured. And that there was a real concerted effort to make the white body the standard of humanness, not just race. Remember, the race question in this country comes from a a designation of when you're talking about race or when the idea of race began to kind of percolate. The idea of race started with the idea of speciesness, a race of dog, a race of bird, a race of cat. Those, the term race was used to denote speciesness. And so when race was then used to make the turn towards to denote people, Right. And that idea was woven in and around through every institutions, through philosophical institutions, through educational institutions, through scientific institutions, through economic institutions, through religious institutions. The idea of the white body being the standard had great utility. And the moment that that idea began to develop resonance and people began to gorge off of that idea, you also showed in the idea of if the white body is the standard of humanness, then the black body must be the antithesis of that. And the indigenous body must be the antithesis of that. So indigenous invisibility got woven in at the same time. That philosophical construct, the structural construct got developed and anti-blackness got woven in at the same time. So the race question really is not a race the way that we think about it. The race question at its root is a species question. Is Resma a monkey? And the answer to that question in terms of the American philosophy and then having that transported all over the world, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. He is not human. That's why I believe that a lot of white folks, when we start to begin to talk about race, have this kind of ancient stuff boiling up in their body that has so much charge that really has not been dealt with since elite white bodies were destroying poor white bodies. Can you make that distinction for people? Remember, most white folks that are listening to me and you talk right now are descended from white people who were fleeing something. Just think about that for a minute. That fleeing energy to leave someplace where your ancestors were, leave that land and go someplace else, that fleeing energy in America never got dealt with. The fleeing energy from elite white bodies genociding poor white bodies, elite white bodies stealing land from poor white bodies, right? So you have all of that energy coming here unresolved, unmediated, unrepaired. Then that energy, you have poor whites 
and then you have enslaved Africans and on indigenous, unceded indigenous land. And then at one point after the Bacon's Rebellion is where the first time you start to begin to see white persons in law, the term white persons. Before that, you saw landowners, you saw merchants, that stuff. But now you start to see white persons. At that moment, the white persons, the white idea, the, the, the white body became the standard rubric by which you determine who should get what and who should be in servitude and who should not be in servitude. Simply by elite white bodies saying to poor white bodies, check this out, you are now white. And white bodies, poor white bodies said, you mean if I'm white, my children may not have to go through everything that I went through and everything that my people's 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 went through coming here. Yeah, we'll take some of that. And so that's why you see such an investment in whiteness right now. I know it's couched in patriotism and Confederate flags and gerrymandering. I mean, it's couched in all of these different types of things, right? But the seed of it is protection of whiteness, protection of whatever that means, because people see their sense of how they keep their children safe and how they keep themselves safe tied to that piece. When did you, Resma, begin to make that distinction in your life? So from 2011 to 2013, I did two years in Afghanistan um, working with trauma and working with people who were traumatized. I was a military contractor over there. I was what was called a community care counselor. What a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of military contractors, they don't have an infrastructure to deal with mental health stuff and an infrastructure to deal with specifically trauma stuff. So they're hearing gunshots. They're dealing with 117, 118, 120 degree heat. They're dealing with the smell of feces all over the place. They're dealing with hangings. They're dealing with suicide. They're dealing with all that in a very concentrated area. And so my job was to help people kind of deal with that or have them go home and deal with it and come back later. And during that time, I end up getting really traumatized during that time, but didn't, wasn't able to deal with it until I got back here in 2013. And then right around uh, in 2013, I didn't actually land until 2015. That's when I kind of like landed here. During that time, I started writing and in 2015-16 started writing my grandmother's hands and the trauma that I had experienced trying to get through, trying to uncover, trying to get better at, and then the trauma, some stories and rememberings that I had between me and my grandmother, it all came together. My own personal trauma and then the historical trauma and the intergenerational trauma and how that stuff shows up. You're describing a kind of mosaic of your trauma and, and pinpointing the pieces of it. I wonder where your upbringing plays a role in this because you've said that I was raised in a family that was sometimes stable, sometimes chaotic. Mm -hmm. My father struggled with chemical dependency and was violent at times. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about how those years as a child, watching your father be violent at times, how that shaped where you are right now. Well, the way that I understand it now, the cultural container that I understand it from the cultural lens, the moorings that I have is that in terms of black people specifically, we have learned things from a wounded people. So white folks are a wounded people. And we learned all of those things around whiteness, the value of blackness, the value of the black body, all those things we have ingested that. I remember listening to this white dude who's a poet and he said that white body supremacy isn't the shark, it's the water. And we're so busy looking for the shark <laughs> that we forget that we're ingesting and breathing in, in the literal water, in the, in the amniotic fluid of my mother's 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 mother who had to deal with rape. The amniotic fluid is cortisol, is adrenaline, is norepinephrine, all of those types of hormones that are designed to protect, but over time can be corrosive. Those things impact me. So when I think about my dad, I think about all of the things that got passed down to him that became decontextualized. 
all of the all of the recoiling and the leaning into from the nervous systems that he came from and how that organized around him to look like personality, to look like culture, to look like family traits. And so when I think about my dad and then the things that I ingested from him and then also the joy that I ingested from him, the joy watching my dad play congas, watching him play and watching him zone is one of the most joyful things that I, I can watch, right, that I can experience. So it wasn't just the traumatic stuff that happened. It was all for the joyful stuff, you know, that elders and adults in my family also displayed. You're bringing up so many sort of larger philosophical questions about what is a life and can we really create our own path? You know, we talk about individual freedoms in this country. Yeah. Are we really able to do that without being overwhelmed by our past? Yeah. It, not when you're talking about race, if you don't develop a cultural container by which you can hold that charge and use that energy to transform as opposed to burn. And so, yes, this idea of rugged individualism that we have in this country, which is a lie. I mean, the people who said go west, young man, also had an army behind them. You know what I mean? That nobody does this stuff by themselves. But but my whole thinking about this, you know, revolves around the idea of rugged individualism is out of balance. Community and communalness is a resource if you've nurtured it right. Right. So when I'm tapped out with my own individual resource and my own individual connection and my own, my own tying back into creation, if I don't have a communal resource when that gets tapped, then I'm left with this sense of loss and constriction. Well, if I don't have enough, then I need to just override, pick myself up and just move through it without realizing that there may have been things that need to be attended to that could only be attended to through community. And what happened to me and my people, to black people, descendants of enslaved Africans here in America, did not happen to us individually. It happened to us communally. So developing only individual responses to a communal horror is woefully inadequate. You, you talk so much about this term, white body supremacy. You, you have defined it and redefined it over and over again in every <laughs> conversation you've had. Yeah. You say, for most Americans, including most of us with dark skin, white body supremacy has become part of our bodies. How could it not? It's the equivalent of a toxic chemical we ingest on a daily basis. Eventually, it changes our brains and the chemistry of our bodies, which is why in looking at white body supremacy, we need to begin not with guilt or blame, but with our bodies. I have an honest question for you as a, as a man and, and <laughs> as a person in the world. That's right. You say not to begin with guilt or blame, but how do you not <laughs> look to guilt or blame? Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying you shouldn't be angry about this crap. I'm not saying you shouldn't do everything you can do to dismantle this crap because it is brutal and it is killing people. It is literally putting babies in cages. Literally is putting babies in cages. I'm sorry, man. I am. Um, People who have experienced this brutality from these five superpowers that started this stuff, Spain, Britain, France, Belgium, Portugal, these superpowers exported the idea of the white body being the standard all across the world through indigenous people. People from Mexico did not always speak Spanish. <laughs> Something happened and continues to happen. And we never want to look at that. And so for me, 
the idea of white body supremacy in looking at it and beginning to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to dismantle it doesn't mean you should not be angry. But don't turn that anger on to yourself. It has to be metabolized. Don't turn it on to your people. Don't take the vertical axis off in terms of the vertical power structure. Don't take that off of the table as you're trying to manage what's happening between you and others of your people. Because the moment you remove that, the moment you remove that vertical structure, you start now attacking people that look like you or other bodies of culture, because that's the function of it. I'm not saying we shouldn't be angry. I'm, I'm angry and mad as hell. I'm finding ways both communally and individually to metabolize it, not assuage it, not stop it, but metabolize it so I can use that energy as fuel for ripping this damn thing apart. Can we go back to that moment just there? Sure. You were quiet. We looked around at other things because to look at a computer trying to make eye contact is not natural. Yeah. You then said, I'm sorry. I was wondering, as you were sitting with it all, what were you thinking about? So I saw a clip um, day before yesterday of a little Mexican girl who was coming out of one of these camps after, I think it's like a year or two years of not seeing her mom. And as she comes out and she sees her mom, she runs over to her mom, but, and the mom is wailing and crying, but I'm looking at the little girl's body. And as I'm watching her, you see this, oh, this is my mom. And I'm, I want to lean in, but then you see this, almost this pulling back, right? Like, can I trust this? Like, what, what is this? And when you asked that question, what popped into my head was how much we're sewing into our babies through this experience, this sense of they can't trust anything. They can't trust anybody, including their mama, including their daddy, including their community. That's what this crap does. That's what white supremacy and white body supremacy does. It makes you doubt the very nature of your existence. And that's why I was pausing because it just, it, it like, it was a lot. It was, it just all of a sudden hit me because that image came in, came in and my stomach did this thing. Then I started getting mad. It's like all of this is all at the same time. This, that, that's why I talk about the body, that this, this, this charge, this weight, this texture all happens at the same time. It does not just one thing. It happens. So I'm experiencing the vibration of it. I'm experiencing the images and the thoughts, the meaning making, the behavior, the affect, the sensation of it all at the same time, along with the charge and texture. And so, that's why I paused. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second. Since the pandemic took control of our lives back in March, we have continued to make this podcast just about every week, sometimes even twice a week. We've done over 45 episodes with 50 different guests from Noam Chomsky to Dr. Cornel West to Representative Ilhan Omar and Miranda July. We've sat with Carol Burnett and Dolores Huerta, Run the Jewels, Dr. Ashish Jha, Hassan Minaj, Ted Danson, Fran Lebowitz, the list goes on. Perhaps you remember some of those episodes. Perhaps you're new here. No matter the case, as an independently operated podcast, I have to tell you our future really does depend on our listeners. Without you, we have no show. So while many listener-supported programs ask for donations this time of year, my ask is more simple. Share the show. Share it with a friend, 
a loved one, a family member, your partner, someone you just started dating, it's really simple. If what we do matters to you, if it's helped you in your life, on a long drive, on your ride to work, in the kitchen while you cook, while you folded laundry or walked around aimlessly by yourself, if it's helped you in any of these places, the best thing you could do for us is to share your enthusiasm on social media, online, or off. Now, before we get back to Resma, you'll notice a change in his audio quality. We had some technical difficulties in the recording session, which, of course, we did not notice until we finished talking. I'd like to think we didn't notice because we were so wrapped up in the final stretch of this back and forth. That's my glass half full reading of it. I hope you feel the same. And now, back to Resma Menekum. How much of what you're describing relates to this idea of traumatic retention? Traumatic retention is this idea that there are things that we retain from subsequent generations and from other nervous systems that look maladaptive, but really are designed to protect us. So, so let me give you an example. So I believe that the idea of whoopings is to try and correct a behavior in a brutal system that if that behavior isn't corrected, you could be murdered. But the idea of whoopings comes out of the term whippings. It is one of these things that are retained from the trauma that we've experienced and then pass that down, right? The N-word, I think, is a traumatic retention. It's one of these things that the idea of the N-word did not exist. There is no N-word, right, on the continent of Africa. That is a construct from our interactions with a wounded people and their designation of what and who we are. Black people were never slaves. We were enslaved, which means something happened. Somebody did something. Someone benefited and was advantaged by it. And some people got rich off of it. And so for me, the idea of traumatic retention, and this is why we have to excavate and look at this stuff, is because many times trauma in a person decontextualized over time can look like personality. Trauma in a family decontextualized over time can look like family traits. Trauma decontextualized in a people over time can look like culture. And it takes time to slow it down so you can begin to discern what's what. Erica Chidi, who describes herself as your number one fan. (laughs) For those listening, she came on the show two years ago. She is formerly a doula, but works as a health educator through her company, Loom, Mm -hmm. which is focused on sexual and reproductive health. She writes, for male identifying people who struggle with being embodied, who are not exertion oriented or not athletic oriented, How do we encourage them to take this more embodied approach to white supremacy, especially knowing that white men are helming the movement? Mm. So one of the things that I've been seeing lately is black, indigenous, other bodies of culture are not giving any more room or deference to white comfort without challenge. And I think when it comes to men specifically, like one of the things that I've been conscious about in terms of somatic abolitionism, in terms of the work that I'm doing, the work that I'm trying to put out, one of the things that I've been very, very conscious about is that just about everybody that I've trained so far have all been black women. In terms of people that are around me, it's mostly women around me. And the reason why is I believe that if something happens to me, I'm not going to have to worry about it being in the hands of somebody who's going to exploit it if, if Black women 
our workingness in an embodied sense, right? And so for me, I think my call to Black men is really let's begin to settle and get back into our bodies, but we don't have to be in the front of this. I don't want to be groomed into being a guru. That's not my thing. That's why when Sis is saying this, I am saying I appreciate her loving me and I will do whatever I can to try and create room so her work is unburdened by my stupidity, unburdened by my need to be as centered as a man. And that's a hard one for me. I want to, you know, be the dude, right? But I know having Black women around me and training them in these the body pieces, I know that the culture will spring from them, not just because Resma is the hottest new thing or the, the latest guru on the scene or something like that. A lot of my work is really spreading this out to Black women and helping them work it in an embodied sense. So Black men are not necessarily centered as the leaders of this thing. This idea of you being a guru, I can't help but shake how on page 194 of your book, you have this paragraph that I think is important. You say, here is the truth about white bodies. They are resilient, just like yours and mine. They can heal just as you and I can. All adults need to learn how to soothe and anchor themselves, rather than expect or demand that others soothe them. All adults need to heal and grow up. But the last part of this paragraph is what I'm particularly fascinated by where you say, nevertheless, many African-Americans have become so habituated to soothing white bodies that it has become reflexive for us. We need to unlearn this reflex. I want to think about that for a moment. Habituated to soothing white bodies has become a reflex. Those words as I've been preparing for this conversation, have replayed in my head. You say we, as in black men and women, need to unlearn this reflex to soothe white people. Mm -hmm. But when I read your work, when we speak, even now, it's hard for me to shake this feeling that your teachings and practices are inextricably linked to this reflex to soothe white bodies. (laughs) the very reflex you wish people of color would unlearn i think that's interesting because there's a part of me that has worked very hard recently at checking my own reflexive response to white comfort moving out of the way when nobody's asking me to move out of the way, when just just kind of positioning to give deference. You know, I, I think about this idea that though for most of our history, the white body has had full and unfettered access to the black body, has had full and unfettered access to every part of my body, every orifice of my body, every idea, contained in my body, every atom in my body, the white body has had full and unfettered access to my body, to black women's bodies, to black men's bodies, black trans bodies, right? Whatever bodies we've has had full and unfettered access. I believe my work is really about giving words and context to black people, to bodies of culture and some white people to those things that we know to be stirring in our stomachs and our chest and our throats and our bodies, but haven't been able to articulate an embodied language for. My work is not about comfort. The whole book is about giving context to what our experience is and actually pushing back against the idea of white comfort. I guess my question is about the personal toll that it takes on you. So let me answer a a question you're not really asking, but I'm sitting in it. The idea that a white body, I'm not genuflecting to healing as the 
healing in this sense that there is this place of comfort that you can reach by going through my work. That's not my positive. My thing operationally is that people who start to begin to lean into somatic abolition or begin to lean into this work will find their suffering's edges. And you will be asked to do it cleanly or dirty, right? You will be asked to either go through this cleanly and individually and with other people in your community. You're going to be asked to do that. Or in a white body, you can just stop and not have any repercussions because the whole structure is built around your comfort. The clean way, however, is to keep going through this as you're leaning into your suffering's edge. You may at any given point lean into some resource. You may at any given point lean into something that you experience as settling for you. Fine. That's not the end of the work, though. (laughs) Just because you found that place, that's not the work. The work is continuing to go through so you can hit some of these other constrictions and bottlenecks as it relates to race specifically and begin to work that so you can continue to usher in what I call a living embodied anti-racist practice and culture. People may find some solace. They may find some resource. But if that's where they stop, they're not doing the work. They're not doing my work. I think as we're thinking about how to proceed forward in this conversation. There is a kind of collective goal, I do think, amongst people who are left-leaning to graduate to a place of allyship. Yeah, bullshit. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. You're allowed to curse on here. Okay, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm trying to do better. Why bullshit? Because... Well, don't. By, by the way, don't make me just say bullshit. You have to say bullshit, too. <laughs> okay, okay. It's bullshit, man, because allyship is a verb. It is not a place, right? It is not a moniker. It is not a Cub Scout or a Girl Scout badge you put on, right? It is a lifelong pursuit of getting better in terms of race. How are you raising your children? How are you naming your children? What ancestors do you commune with? Who are your heroes as it relates to anti-racist practices and culture? That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about performative allyship. I'm talking about being a dog and realizing that you're seeding the ground and you're probably not going to see the fruit. But you're seeding the ground for white women. I'm talking about white allies. For a culture to be built by which the charge of race can be contained and then something new can emerge out of it. That's what I'm talking about. You can tell me you're an ally, and the first thing I'm going to ask you is, who are your people? And you're going to look at me like, what? Who are your people? I'm not interested in your individual leanings. I'm interested in who are the people that are going to hold you accountable? Who are the people that are going to admonish you? And then you come back and you get more of it because you realize that your transformation into being a person who can literally begin to uh, undermine white body supremacy in your white body, that you keep coming back for that because you don't want to pass this sickness down to your children's 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 children. That's allyship to me. That's why I said bullshit. Because let me say one quick thing. After Brother George Floyd got murdered and Sister Brianna got murdered and Brother Arbery, right? After that, those murders happened, I can't tell you how many white folks was calling me, blowing up my phone, trying to get me to fly here, trying to get me to go there. Can you do this workshop? Can we do this, right? I mean, it was bananas, okay? You know how many of those same people I'm getting calls from now? None. Because it was all performative. It was all emotional. It was all reflexive. That's not culture building. That's not peoplehood building. That's not building a living embodied anti-racist practice and culture. When I say that, I'm saying you're in this for life. 
But see, when white folks get tired, all they got to do is stop and they will have no repercussions. That's why I said bullshit. And that's why I brought it up. (laughs) It's a lifetime commitment. Not just your lifetime either. It's your children's lifetime commitment. And so you need to set the container for that to occur. And unfortunately, many people, irrespective of race or class, are interested in instant results, instant gratification. So before we go, what do you say to those who are hearing this and are thinking, oh my God, this seems insurmountable. This, this seems impossible to overcome. If they're in a white body, get two other white bodies and go through it together commit to the next one to three years that no matter what, we're going to keep coming back to this specifically around race. Don't try and make it into a yoga practice. Don't try and turn it into a book club. Just only on race. Just just deal with it on race because the race has the charge. It's ancient. It's so old. The charge will transform you. But if you find off ramps to it, you won't get it. You'll keep trying to stop it. You'll keep trying to assuage the energy. If I'm talking to bodies of culture, the one first thing that I want to say to bodies of culture that are listening, and I want to pause in this for a minute, and I want you to hear me, and you're probably not even going to know you needed to hear this until you hear it. I want you to know that you are not defective. You are not a fraud. In a society that's predicated on the white body being the supreme standard by which all bodies' humanity shall be measured structurally and philosophically, woven in that is the fact that you don't quite measure up. That's structural. That's not intrinsic. That's not innate. You are innately beautiful. You are not defective. Start there. You wrote in regards to the future of this country. One of two things will happen. Ideally, America will grow up and out of white body supremacy. Americans will begin healing their long-held trauma around race. And whiteness will begin to evolve from race to culture and then to community. The other possibility is that white body supremacy will continue to be reinforced as the dominant structured form of energy in American culture, in much the same way Aryan supremacy dominated German culture in the 1930s and early 40s. I hate to turn you into a prognosticator, but where do you think we stand on those two possibilities? I think when it comes to bodies of culture, we're not giving deference and room like we were. So I think that's creating a constriction for white bodies. I think white bodies, 71 million of them, ain't going for it. So I can't really answer that question. I'm just setting up the equation. 71 million voted for ripping babies out of mother's arms. And that's where we're at. And if you think that all you got to do is reach across the aisle and talk to those people and figure out a way to bring them along and bring them back into the human family, you go right ahead and waste your life force on that. I'd rather build something for the people who at least have some leanings in that direction. Well, I thank you for what you've built. And uh, it's clear to me, and I'm sure everyone listening, that no matter who you are, where you are, we got a lot of work to do. Resma, thank you very much. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Anytime. our show. Special thanks this week to Sam Mattingly and Resma Manakum. Resma's latest book, My Grandmother's Hands, 
is available wherever you do your reading. To learn more about him and his work, be sure to visit resma.com. That's R-E-S-M-A-A dot com. You can also check out our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. There you'll find a back catalog of episodes with folks like Dr. Cornell West, Noam Chomsky, Representative Ilhan Omar, Ted Danson, Dolores Huerta, and many, many more. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at sam at talkeasypod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, this show is made possible by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel, David Harding, Kevin Kaur, and Rena Zhang. Our music is by Dylan Peck, marketing by Patrice Lee. Interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gabrzak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back next week with Matthew McConaughey. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.